Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Vanessa Ayala is an all-star student on campus. She has led several student organizations, presented her psychology research as a McNair scholar, and welcomed new Lakers during orientation. In fall 2019, Vanessa's doctors gave her a diagnosis that changed her college experience. In this episode, guest host Emily Alvello Director of Student Involvement, talks with Vanessa about what inspires her and helps her overcome obstacles on her path to graduation. I hope you will enjoy this inspiring conversation. This episode is the first in a series where we will get to know Roosevelt students. Join us to meet more Lakers and hear how they are making an impact at Roosevelt. Enjoy. Well, I'd like to start today and just say how honored I am to be speaking with Vanessa Ayala about her experiences during her time here at Roosevelt. Vanessa is a senior And I've had the honor of working closely with Vanessa during her time working with the Center for Student Involvement through her membership in SPEED, in which now she's the chair of, and also through her participation as one of our orientation leaders and recently our head orientation leader. In addition to those amazing responsibilities, Vanessa also is part of Alpha Gamma Delta, and she is a McNair Scholar. And she was most recently the president of ALAS, which is our Latinx organization here at Roosevelt. Vanessa's also an amazing student. I'm in awe of how you've accomplished so many things and kept in balance with everything. So uh, I'm really excited to get an opportunity to hear more of your story, Vanessa, and for you to really share your experiences while at Roosevelt and talk about you know, how you've overcome some things, right? Because there's been some things. But first, girl, you're involved in everything. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you so much for being here, Vanessa, and, and for sharing your story and being willing to share your story with the listeners. I know I've told you this before, but I really value so much how you show up authentically and how you contribute to to the community and to your peers in everything that you do. So just, again, thank you. I would like everyone else really to learn more about what inspires you, what drives you, and what keeps you doing all the things that you do. So are you excited and ready to share a little bit about that today? Yes, I'm so excited to share. So let's go down memory lane. And I know I've heard some of these stories, but not everybody has, and they're pretty awesome. So let's go back down memory lane and take us to your first year at Roosevelt, like young Vanessa, fresh-eyed, coming to Roosevelt. Okay, so you have that picture in your mind? 
Yeah, I do. (laughs) So when you first came to Roosevelt, like what were you hoping to get out of your college experience? When I first came to Roosevelt, I didn't know really what to expect just because I am a first generation student. So to me, higher education was something that I had no clue about because no one in my family had gone to college. So I honestly did not know what to expect. I, I kept hearing that high school was a lot different than college. So, you know, there was it was a big step and the change was really different. So to me, I just thought classes were going to be harder. Um, I didn't really think about the community aspect. Like to me, I just thought about, you know, I was going to Roosevelt to get an education. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I expected. I didn't expect much, but it became a lot more. Mm-hmm. And you are Chicago native, correct? I was born in Chicago, but I moved to the Southwest suburbs when I was three. Wonderful. So you mentioned when you came to college, you weren't really expecting much other than, you know, changes in class expectations, right? The rigor maybe for your academics and being a first gen student, you really had nothing to, nobody to really kind of tell you differently, right? Right. So you were figuring it out on your own. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So when you got to Roosevelt, kind of what did you start to discover? So when I first got to Roosevelt, I noticed that there were a lot of minority students, uh, which was something that I was not used to. So I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, and I never really saw Latinx representation in higher education. I never saw Latinos in higher positions. So to me, that was kind of like a shock because I didn't, I was never, like, I was never used to seeing, you know, Latinos in in these positions. I wasn't used to seeing, like, my culture in an educational setting. So especially since Roosevelt was a social justice school, like, that was just completely different to me because I hadn't experienced that. And when I got to Roosevelt, I right away joined ALAS, which is the Association of Latin American Students. And I was just so shocked that they even had those groups because in high school, like, that you know, that wasn't the case. And in high school, I wasn't involved at all. So coming to Roosevelt, that was a really big difference. So, you know, you mentioned getting connected, seeing people who look like you, right, who look like you, who maybe had similar backgrounds. And so you were able to connect. And how important would you say that has been for you to see folks who maybe have a similar cultural background at your institution? Like what what role do you think that's played for you in your experience as a student? I think it's been a crucial role and it's one that's very important because all of these individuals who advocate for underrepresented students have been kind of the main reason why I'm so involved. They've always pushed me to get more involved and to take on leadership positions to kind of stay away from what I'm comfortable with and, you know, just get out of my comfort zone. And it's been a lot with like multicultural student support services and the center of student involvement. And I think without those individuals, I wouldn't have been so involved because I wouldn't have someone to push me or I wouldn't have seen those minorities in higher positions because, you know, in high school, that wasn't something I saw growing up. That wasn't something I I was used to seeing. So for me, I guess I've always felt like intimidated. But once I came to Roosevelt and saw the difference, that kind of pushed me to go out of my comfort zone. I love that. 
I love that. Thank you for sharing. And I think it's really important for others to hear that because that's so powerful, right? So back to freshman or first year Vanessa. So what influenced you? So seeing people that look like you, finding connection, were there any people specifically or things that influenced you to get so involved outside of wanting to connect to the community? Yeah. So when I was going through orientation, I met two orientation leaders. They were my orientation leaders. Um, it was Samantha Hernandez and Carla Ortiz. Carla was a senior and Sam was a sophomore. So they kind of just, I would say like they added me to their group and they were very involved. So they kind of pushed me to get involved. And that's kind of how I became an orientation leader. Like I thought it was so fun. So I was like, oh, I, w- like, I want to join this. And the same thing with Alas, they took me to the meeting. And it was, it was just pretty much like them kind of showing me around and again, like pushing me out of my comfort zone. And I would also say Jose Marroquin, who was the director of the Center of Student Involvement when I was a freshman. One of the main reasons why I knew about these positions and he pushed me to, you know, apply and he was like, hey, like, I think you would be really good for this position. You should apply to it. And I think that was just really important because I think without that push, I wouldn't have done it without him like telling me and reminding me like of my potential and, you know, just my skills. I don't think I would have gone for it if he wouldn't have, you know, advocated and supported me. Absolutely. I love that. That's so real, right? Like so often people don't see what other people see in them. And I think it's so great that you had those individuals in your life to really set you on your path because look at you now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I know that there have been some ups and downs throughout life, right? Like life happens. Um, it's not always a straight line. It's not always what we think is going to happen or, or what we expect or what we plan for ourselves. So help me like understand a little bit about how you stay motivated through moments or times that might have been challenging. For me, I think just reminding myself you know, why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. I think also at times, you know, you do need reminders and you do need people to kind of like, you know, nudge you and tell you like, hey, like, you know, you're doing great or, you know, just simply like support. And I think for me, having that support system at Roosevelt, whether it be friends, whether it be faculty members or whether it be staff, just having people around me and having them just constantly supporting me, telling me, you know, how, how good I'm doing is what keeps me going because I know that there are people in my corner and people that will always be there for me and people who will just support me, whatever happens, you know, they'll be there. Great. I mean, support is everything. I, I agree with you. I think it makes the world of difference. So speaking of challenges, I know I mentioned that. I know you've shared openly about a very difficult time in your life. And, you know, in fact, when we first met, it wasn't in person, right? We met over the phone a few times before we actually physically met in person. (laughs) Um, It was during our speed meeting. You were joining in over the phone because you weren't physically on campus due to some medical challenges, right? So if it's okay, I'd like to ask some questions about really what helped you get through that period of your life. And is that, would that be okay? 
Yes, of course. All right. Well, thank you. I'm going to thank you up front for, for sharing with us and being vulnerable to share your story. So from what I recall and what I, what I know from our conversations previously, during the start of the fall 2019 semester, you began to like not really feel well. It actually started during orientation. Yeah. And because of the person that you are, you're trying to push through. You're like, this is fine. I'm not really sick, whatever. And avoiding going to check, check it out. But then when you finally did, you know, talk me through the moment that you learned of what your diagnosis actually was. So like you said, I was super involved. So to me, I started experiencing headaches for the majority of the week. And since I was really involved, I was like, oh, like, I don't really have time to like, you know, go get this check. Like, I'll go get a check later. I'm like, girl, oh, go away. And I thought I was just developing migraines because my mom gets really bad migraines. So to me, it just wasn't something that I was like, oh, like, maybe I should go get it checked out. But I finally decided to go. And before I even went to the hospital, I told my mom, I was like, it was a Monday, September 9th. I remember I went to school. I went to class. And then I told my mom, like, okay, I have a break. You're going to pick me up from the train. We're going to go get blood work done. And then I, you have to take me back to school. And I was like, cause I got something to do at school. And I was like, and I can't miss it. And she was like, okay, yeah, sure. But she knew that he was going to take me to the ER. So I was like, no, mom, like, you can't take me to the ER. Like, why, you know, I have stuff to do. Like, this is going to take forever. So I was just like, okay, you know what? Whatever. It's fine. Like, we'll go to the ER. And when I got to the ER, they were kind of like, okay, like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, well, I'm getting really bad headaches. And, you know, I have some bruising on my legs, but I don't know. Like, I don't think I hit myself. And they started doing tests and they couldn't find what was wrong with me because I was standing up straight, like I was fine until they did blood work and they did an MRI and everything came back normal. So they were kind of confused until they saw my blood work. And once they saw my blood work, they kind of put me into a room and I started realizing that maybe it was a little bit more serious because everybody else was just walking out if they nothing was wrong and I was put into a room. So I was kind of like, oh, like what's going on here? And so then... The doctor comes in and he looks at me and my mom. And he's like, so we think this is actually something more serious. And then he said, we think you have leukemia. And in like that moment, I didn't even know like what to do because my mom, like she was like sitting there, you know, hearing that, you know, your child at the age of 20 has cancer is like really hard. And for me, like I didn't like I knew leukemia was blood cancer, but I didn't know what else like my I didn't know what else it meant like to me it was just hearing the words like oh you have cancer and in the movie sometimes you know you see where like they kind of like zone out they don't hear anything except that but for me it was kind of zoning everything else out except his voice like telling me like you have cancer and like telling me that you know I was I was going to stay in the hospital that they needed to do more testing and then he just kind of walked out and he, he was just like, oh, like, I'm, I'm so sorry. And I remember just like turning to my mom and we both started crying because before I entered the hospital, I had told her, like, it's not like I'm dying to be, you know, going to the ER. And then hearing someone say, like, you're dying is is really ironic and, you know, not something that happens. So happens frequently, I said, I guess. So 
it was just, it was really hard, like just hearing, you know, those words and not knowing if, you know, you were going to live or not at the age of 20 when, you know, your life is barely starting and, you know, you're going to college to get this degree for your future, but you don't even know if you're going to have a future. So it, it was really hard. I know, I know. Like you, we've had our cry sessions, right? Like, and yeah. and I, I'm in so much awe. Like just the fact that you continued on in such a positive way, right after that moment, which is a lot. It's a lot for a person, any person, to take on. But absolutely, especially when you're just figuring out your life and what you want to do and you're getting ready to explore the next avenue of your life, like knowing that you're going to be graduating soon. Right. So I can't imagine, you know, and um, I know we've talked a little bit about this. And so what, what's helped you like stay hopeful and to, to move forward, even with that kind of daunting unknown variable now in the mix so what really pushed you through those early days and throughout the year while you were going through treatments and everything I think there were a variety of things the first thing was when I was diagnosed the day I was diagnosed all my aunts and my uncles like came and they like were looking at me they were like girl are you okay like what do you need and I think that was kind of the biggest thing like those first two weeks I was in the hospital I don't think there was maybe like more than two hours except for the fact when I was sleeping of course you know after hours that I was alone because I constantly had visitors those first two weeks it got to the point where the waiting room was full of like my <laughs> friends and family and all the nurses like the second someone walked in they're like oh yeah Vanessa like the, her room's over there and I think that's one of the biggest things that, you know, kind of got me through it, like having like my family and my friends there and even people I hadn't seen in years, like people just show up because they wanted to support me. And I think another thing, too, was I wouldn't say that it was an easy ride because when I was in the hospital, I was there for 45 days. So they told me at the beginning that I was going to be there for like just just two weeks and then they added two more weeks. And then they added two more. So at some point, I started to fall into like a really, really bad place. Like a lot of, I started thinking like, what, what did things even matter anymore? Because I wasn't sure like about my future. I wasn't sure how long I was going to be in treatment. Like I would, I just wasn't sure like if I would make it out of the hospital. So I got sick actually like the third week in and I couldn't have any visitors. So I think that's what really like put me into that dark place because I, I just didn't want to do anything. Like I didn't want to get up. Like I just wanted to lay in bed. I didn't want to do any of my work. And it wasn't until like, I, I don't know, my, my friends, I guess, and my family just kept sending me messages, even if they couldn't be there. And I started realizing like, okay, well, you know, I have like all the support here and I just need to do like my part. So I don't know. I just think like having people around is what made me so hopeful and having school because with my education, like I was able to keep my mind off of things. And even though I was in, you know, a hospital room for 45 days, I was able to, you know, still continue with my education and not just be thinking about, 
my whole diagnosis the whole day and I had something to do while I was there. So I think just overall, like support and my education were like the biggest things that helped me kind of through it. And even even when I was going through my treatment as an outpatient, like I was still I was still going Monday through Friday for maybe like five hours, maybe more. And just having schoolwork is what honestly kept me kept me busy. It kind of helped me to like out of that dark place because I realized that, you know, I was doing something for my future and maybe there was a hope and I was hoping that, you know, the treatments would work. So I think a mixture of all those things are really what helped me. Yeah. I mean, staying hopeful during dark times is not easy. And I saw you getting a little bit emotional, right? Like just even reflecting on that moment, being in that space, because you're not usually in that kind of a headspace, right? But but when yeah. you really don't know the answer and you have no true control, it can feel really trying. I remember having a conversation with you just asking like, or just letting you know, like, I know you're involved in all the things. Like, do you, <laughs> do you, do you need a break? Like, do we want to prioritize? And you like reiterated just what you said right now. Like, Emily, like I, I need me being involved and active helps me not think about everything else. It helps me focus on my future, yeah. you know? And so how important that was and holding on to that vision because sometimes what you think and, and dream about manifest too, you know? So, and and I think that your story is, is so awesome in that way that you kept going. So I mentioned in the beginning, like you were amazing in keeping your academics going. I don't know if I would have been that resilient, you know, like personally just going back to my life as a college student, but you really, even through all of the treatments, all of the continued visits to the hospital and, and being, I think you were almost a hundred percent virtual at that point, right? Like throughout the semester for the majority yeah. of the semester, you know, being remote, you somehow came through with a 4.0 GPA, like, or I don't know how you did it, <laughs> but you did it. <laughs> I know it was, I would say it was really hard because I mean, getting a 4.0 is hard by itself, but going through chemo and having chemo brain, like that was even worse. And I think what helped me too was, you know, I had an accommodation form with the disability services office and my boss, who was Adam at the time, he he also advocated on my behalf and, you know, he reached out to professors and they were all super understanding and they kind of helped me with, with that too. They knew that at times I would need, you know, maybe a day or two to kind of like figure things out or even on tests, like just having more time, I think was really big because I would read something and the second later I would forget it or I would be talking to someone and I would forget what I was even talking about. And I'd be like, oh, like, what was I saying? And they would remind me and I'd be like, okay. And then five minutes later, I would forget again. So it was, it was so hard, like trying to keep up with, you know, my education when I constantly had to be rereading things. Yeah. And, and you still did it, right? And you still pushed yourself. And I don't think we've ever talked about this, but like I actually have a reading disability. So for me, right, I, I too constantly have to reread things just to make sure I'm reading properly. And it's sometimes challenging to all of a sudden get accommodations when you've never had to have them before. I think accepting that it's about supporting you to be as competitive or achieve your the best that you can given 
you know, your unique needs. Did you use accommodations before that time? Because I, I would love to hear about like what it felt like for the first time to start using accommodations and, and kind of your thoughts initially about that. So before this, I had never used an accommodation, but I am a peer mentor, so I knew how they worked. And I myself got a peer mentor because I knew I needed help, like with, whether it be with studying or just keeping track of things. I got a peer mentor, one of my coworkers, actually. So for me, it was it was kind of easy in those terms to like accept it just because I worked with the disability service office and I just knew it wasn't something to be ashamed of. And for me, I knew that I needed, I needed that help. So advocating for myself was something that maybe in high school I wouldn't have done, but you know, at col- in college, like now that I know my resources, I was able to do that. And I think this is really, again, this ties back to, you know, having individuals who are kind of advocating for underrepresented students, because as I said, in high school, I wouldn't have done this. And if I wouldn't have met Adam, or if I wouldn't have been a peer mentor, I don't think I probably would have done it just because of, you know, like the stigma. I wouldn't have been wanted to see, wanted people to see me as, you know, someone who has, you know, a disability or needs an accommodation. But as like time passes and, you know, as I started getting involved, I realized that, you know, that's not important. You know, it's not something to be ashamed of. You know, everyone needs help at in some time of their life. And it's kind of up to them at the end of the day, like whether they're going to ask for that help. But there also needs to be individuals willing to help those those students. Absolutely. You know, and, and there's some intersections across some things, right? We're both Latina. And like, so we talk about, you know, the intersections of just the, the concept of asking for help, right? And how culturally that often is not always encouraged, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and so, you know, embracing that and being exposed to experiences and people that help you understand that like asking for help is a beautiful thing, right? It, it doesn't mean anything other than getting support for, for moving forward in your goals. And so- and it takes time to get there. So I'm so happy that you had those initial influences and that you were able to get that experience. You know, everything kind of set you up so that when you needed that support, you were able to fully accept it as an opportunity to allow yourself to continue to compete, right? With your classmates on the same level, because an accommodation is all about getting you the resources you need just to have on the same playing field that everybody else does. So I'm so glad that you were able to do that because, girl, you got that (laughs) (laughs) 4.0. Yes, you did. You know, and you've done research. You've been such a phenomenal scholar. And so I just want to, again, highlight how much you've been able to accomplish in these these past few years. And you're graduating this year. I'm going to miss you to pieces. Um, <laughs> and, and we'll celebrate then. And so I do want to talk about thinking about all the things that we've just talked about, right? Fast forward, staying hopeful, thinking about a future, summer of 2020. I, I'll never forget the day that we celebrated a little bit over the phone, just cheerfully and and being ex- excited because you finally got the word that what? I was cancer free. Yes. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, 
once you learned, talk me through that moment when you, you finally heard the news, you got the diagnosis, what were your immediate, like, take me to that place. What were your immediate feelings and thoughts? So my last day of chemo was May 15th. And technically that was, you know, the day that they were supposed to celebrate, but I needed to have a bone marrow biopsy done, which are super painful. And I was kind of dreading it because I knew that I wouldn't be able to walk good for like a week. So once I finally had that procedure done on June 2nd, I got the results back that said that there was no more cancer. Um, So my doctor called me and he let me know like, hey, like I just got the results back. Like you're 100% cancer free. And I tried to hold it in because I like I didn't want to seem like, you know, like a chicken. I don't know. And in front of him. So I was on the phone with him and I was just like, okay, thanks. And the second I hung up, I started crying and I called my mom right away and I told her like, guess what, you know, and I told her how I was 100% cancer free. And she was also crying. But I was like, okay, I have to go because I have to call everybody else. So (laughs) I I called my dad, but he was at work. So eventually, when he called me, like, I was able to let him know that I was 100% cancer free. But the next thing I did was I pretty much just I took a video on Snapchat of myself like crying. It was so ugly. Um, But I wanted to tell everyone, like I wanted to tell the whole world. So pretty much all my closest friends and all my cousins, like I sent them, you know, a video of me crying and it was so embarrassing now that I look back at it, but it was such, just such a happy moment to know that I was no longer dealing with this. And although I still think about it like every day, I just felt like an instant relief, like off my chest because I knew that you know, I had beat this, something that was kind of limiting me for my future. And just to have that gone, like, it just felt like a miracle. Yes. You know, everything that you had been hoping for, like, had been answered. And and all of this, the things that you did in preparation to get to this point, to see your future, were coming to fruition. So... I love that. <laughs> and I know we still celebrate all the time. Your your constant com- you have a, a, a huge sense of humor. You know, and I know whenever there's stressors or things going on, you're always like, but I had cancer. So like you <laughs> you, you, you need to be nice to me. And and I just I just again, you know, Vanessa, I love and appreciate all that you bring to the table and and so I'm so grateful that I've been able to get to know you in this lifetime. And and thinking about your experience as a member of Speed, as a chair of Speed, even this year, you felt really passionately about wanting to give back, right, to the experience that you had and talk us through, like, I would love for you to share a little bit about the outreach that we did, that you did, really, for Blood Cancer Awareness Month and, and why that was important to you. You shared with us on, on Speed and within CSI, but I, I think it's important for other, others to hear why you felt like it was so important to give back to the cause. Yeah. So in September, when I was diagnosed last year, I, I later found out that it was Blood Cancer Awareness Month. And I was like, how ironic. I got diagnosed with leukemia on, in like Blood Cancer Awareness Month. And I was like, great. So now this year, I was like, okay, well, this is something like that, you know, kind of inspires me to just do better give back because when I was in the hospital 
every single day I got blood transfusions or like platelet transfusions up until I think a week prior to the hospital, but some days I needed two transfusions. So it, it was something that was kind of eye opening to me. Like I never realized how much is needed, you know, to have a cancer patient like recover and have them be healthy. So I started looking at, you know, like blood donations. And although I can't donate blood just because of, you know, I had blood cancer, but I was like, there's other people that can. And I know that maybe in the Roosevelt community, just because it hits a little bit harder to home, you know, there might be people who want to donate. So we reached out to a company that does blood donations and they go to colleges or they go, I think actually they go anywhere, anywhere that people <laughs> want to have, you know, people donate blood. But yeah, so we, with COVID, it was kind of hard because we were like, how are we even going to pull this off? You know, it's going to be so hard, but they offered a bus outside of Roosevelt and students can just come in and it was three students at a time and they can donate blood and then they can go on with their day. And with the speed board, I knew that this was something that they were also interested in just because, you know, it hit close to home. So I think it was just like very important and like not only to me, but to them as well. And I don't think it would have been able to be done if, you know, it weren't for the board and for Kayla and for you, Emily. So I think it's just very important to advocate about those things, especially, you know, when it hits really, really close to home. Yeah. And I think the awesome thing is it's something that we now are wanting to do every year, right? Like in honor of you, but also continuing to think about how we can be in service to others and and, and in contribution. So thank you for that and for making that a cause that you felt passionately about, right? Giving back because it's also allowed us to become more aware of, of those issues and to be able to, as a community, think about how we get to give back. So again, leaving your inspiration across <laughs> across the planet as you go. I love it. So any other, any words of wisdom, right? Any thoughts you have for any other students who might be going through a tough period in your life like this, let it be for themselves or for their family members. And in consideration, like even COVID times, right? Like a lot of people are feeling in despair or, or feeling like those days, that third week in the hospital, like feeling like there's no light at the end of the tunnel type of thing. And so if you have any words of wisdom or or things that you'd like to kind of share with the community, I think they'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it too. Yeah. I think what I will say is there is always a light at the end of the tunnel, but you just kind of have to find it. And sometimes it's a very long tunnel that you have to go through, but at the end of it, there will be a light. And I think for me, just having that support system, having people to surround yourself with that are always going to support you, are going to ask you constantly, like, what you need? And just will honestly care about your your overall well-being. I think having those people around is what's going to help you. And just they're going to be the light at the end of the tunnel pretty much because you know that you will always have them to count on. Even on your darkest days, they will help you see that light. Thank you. Thank you so much for your story, Vanessa, and for continuing to serve, you know, the Roosevelt community and giving back. We appreciate you so much. And I'm so happy that we still have you for another semester, maybe a few more if you, you know, the grad program situation works out. So 
more to yeah. come. The future and the possibilities are endless. So thank you so much, Vanessa. Have a great thank day. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>